I'm Anthony Wong, Program Coordinator of the Institute. Thanks to everyone for joining us for tonight's book talk on American Survivors, Trans-Pacific Memories of Hiroshima and Nagasaki with Professor Naoko Wake. Uh, using more than 130 oral histories of Japanese-American and Korean-American atomic bomb survivors, uh, their family members, community activists, and physicians, American Survivors reveals a cross-national history of war, illness, immigration, gender, family, and community from intimately personal perspectives. Uh, Naoko Wake is Associate Professor of History at Michigan State University, a historian of gender, sexuality, and illness in the 21st, uh, 20th century United States and the Pacific Rim. Professor Wake has written on the history of psychiatric and psychoanalytic approaches uh, to homosexuality in her first book, Private Practices, uh, Harry Stack Sullivan, The Science of Homosexuality and American Liberalism. Uh, her second book, which she is presenting on tonight, American Survivors, uh, was published in June 2021 by Cambridge. Uh, her current project is about the history of disability among Asian Pacific Islander Desi Americans. Uh, please welcome Professor Wackett. Good evening, everybody. Uh, thank you for being here. I'm excited to be talking about my recently published book, which is about uh, Asian American survivors of the bomb that were dropped on Hiroshima and Nagasaki at the end of the war, 1945. Uh, my book itself uh, focuses on transnational memory making among those Asian American survivors who are largely Japanese Americans, but also include uh, numbers of uh, Korean uh, American survivors and how their experiences compare uh, to, or to, to be more precise, different from Japanese or Korean American survivors' uh, experiences after 1945 up to present. In today's talk, I like to highlight uh, even more than I did in my book, uh, the comparison among those three groups of survivors after 1945, uh, so I will look at not only Asian American experiences, but also Korean and Japanese American experiences when it comes to survivors of Hiroshima and Nagasaki. And in so doing, I will be using notion of race, gender, ability, or disability uh, as a central analytical drive in my talk. So if you could keep in your mind that those notions are very important uh, ways in which I am approaching this comparative studies of those three groups of survivors across the Pacific, I think it'd be very helpful. I am directing the Asian Pacific American Studies program at Michigan State University. And as many of you are aware, um, Asian American uh, communities in the past two and a half years or so have gone through many challenges. Uh, because in part because of the rise of anti-Asian sentiment and even violence in many ways uh, that plagued our um, place in society. And my book, uh, in many ways, kind of think about the uh, historical origins uh, of those anti-Asian sentiment by, again, looking at survivors' experiences and also um, experiences uh, that differ in Asian community, Asian American community, even among survivors that do share experience of being bombed in Hiroshima and Nagasaki. If you compare Asian American survivors' experiences to Korean and Japanese survivors. So let me start my presentation here by introducing you to a woman named Kuniko Jenkins. When Kuniko Jenkins, 
an American survivor of the Hiroshima A bombing in 1945, attended the 1978 congressional hearing of a bill concerning a federally funded program to treat radiation illness among US survivors, her disability was in plain sight. She could not speak for herself. Relying on an oxygen tank to breathe because of her respiratory illness, which she believed was caused by irradiation some three decades ago, she had someone else read her prepared statement. When Jenkins walked up to the witness stand, quote unquote, her portable green oxygen tank beside her was on public display, drawing attention from journalists in the room. And this is the image of Kuniko Jenkins uh, with her oxygen tank. Uh, unfortunately, I do not have her picture from this 1978 hearing itself, but this image was taken uh, just a year earlier in 1977, and it appeared on the newsletter created by Committee of A-Bomb Survivors in the United States of America, which is a grassroots self-help organization created by and for U.S. survivors of Hiroshima and Nagasaki. What was not present in the, the hearing room, however, was the glamour that had surrounded survivors of a different nationality two decades earlier, the Hiroshima maidens, who are 25 young Japanese women who had come to America in 1955 to repair their bomb-scarred faces and feminine beauty. Unlike these Japanese counterparts whose restored appearance, femininity, and marriageability were to assist U.S.-Japan alliance building in the Cold War, American survivors of the 1945 bombings, like Jenkins, were not dressed in, quote-unquote, casimir sweaters and tweed, tweed skirts, pleasing to the eye. Simply put, Jenkins had no white middle-class American host families to assist her, as did the Hiroshima maidens, eager not only to help heal the women's psychological and physical scars, but also to correct their attire and sociability. Neither did American survivors in the hearing room wear any notable hairstyling or makeup. Here again, these survivors stood in sharp contrast to their Japanese counterparts, whose recovery over the three over the year was accompanied by more vividly colored lipstick and impeccable hairstyles. And here you see two contrasting images of the Hiroshima maidens. To your left, you see Hiroshima maidens who really just arrived, pictured with uh, one of their Quaker hosts at uh, uh, airport in Philadelphia in 1955. And to your right, you see Hiroshima maiden after receiving those collective surgeries, uh, right before they depart uh, from New York airport to Japan in 1956. And I hope you can see how they're dressed differently and also their hairstyles are different, their makes up are, the makeups are different. And their whole presentation is just really showing how repaired and sophisticated and put together they are compared to the time when they originally came for treatment to the US a year before. So it was not only the passage of time and shifting idea of femininity that separated the survivors from the different shores, from Japan, like you see on the screen, and on the US side of things, as you saw in the earlier story of Kuniko Jenkins. Their contrasting embodiments of survivor food reflected, I argue, 
divergent places that it, they occupied in the history of gender, race, and disability in the decolonizing Pacific. While survivors who conformed to the US-led post-war nuclear um, order displayed traditional femininity, those who protested the order, on the other hand, showed the bomb's human effects in ways that subverted gender boundaries. In this presentation today, I show the uneven histories of survivors' activism involving publicly visible nuclear injuries, which took shape in the 1970s across the Pacific. By looking beyond the famous Hiroshima maidens and applying intersectional analysis of gender, race, and disability to American, Korean, and Japanese hibakusha, meaning here A-bomb survivors, I decentralized the scarred Japanese femininity in hibakusha history. A striking embodiment of American dominance in the Pacific in the 1950s, the Hiroshima Maidens project has drawn much scholarly attention. A privately funded program whose beneficiaries accounted for only a small fraction of Hibakusha, the project nonetheless allowed many Americans to be relieved of the atomic guilt by giving the women plastic surgery free of cost. As these women waited to heal from the operations, they were hosted by white well-to-do families in New York suburbs, becoming a symbol of American abundance, benevolence, and hegemony. In contrast, US survivors were little known on either side of the Pacific, and they remain so today. In most cases, they had been children during the war. They had been in Japan for family reasons like seeing their extended kin. Then the war fell on them in December, 1941 making it impossible to return to America. Hiroshima and Nagasaki ranked high among Japanese prefectures that had sent overseas immigrants to Hawaii and the US mainland before the war, resulting in a substantial number of American citizens of Japanese ancestry being affected by the bomb. Although an estimated thousand returned to America beginning in 1947, they didn't come together until the late 1960s a racial minorities whose families had been incarcerated in Japanese American camps during the war, they found their survivor food difficult to explain. They feared marginalization because of their assumed racial otherness and national disloyalty. But in the 1970s, they formed a grassroots organization I mentioned earlier, giving rise to the activism such as Jenkins. They confronted not only racism, but also sexism and ableism that had rendered nuclear injuries invisible. Public displays of bomb-inflicted scars and disabilities as a means of protest were not uniquely American phenomena, of course. The critical expression of nuclear survivor food had a historical precedent, that is, Korean survivors, who began to demand compensation by the Japanese government in the late 1960s. Compared to American hibakusha, whose number ran small, Korean accounted, Koreans accounted for one in every 10 casualties of Hiroshima and Nagasaki, the fact that may not be familiar to many anyway. But their number didn't immediately translate into their visibility. In fact, scars and sickness among any survivor, whether Korean or Japanese, remained largely hidden from the public in the 1950s and much of the 60s. Just as American media 
exhibited ambivalence about making scars of the Hiroshima maidens visible, Japanese and Korean media showed survivors' disabilities only infrequently. When they were shown, their images led to state censorship or public criticism. The stigmatization of radi radiation illness and injury persisted, making nuclear scars undesirable, often shameful objects for the public to see. No longer considered Japanese nationals after Korea's liberation in 1945, Korean survivors were excluded from most national relief programs in Japan. Moreover, Korean returnees were seen as betrayers who had abandoned Korea to pursue personal gains in Japan during the war, subjecting Korean survivors in Korea to dual discrimination. In the late 1960s, however, reports showing nuclear scars of Korean survivors started to appear in Japanese media. As victims of Japanese racism and colonialism, they, get, uh, they generated a compelling critique of Japan's post-colonial positionality within the U.S.-Japan Cold War alliance. Spurred by these explicit images, some Japanese survivors began to show their injuries too, intensifying their demands for better state recognition and expanded financial support. Consequently, not only Japanese, but also Korean government's recognition of Korean survivors increased. Now, American survivors like Jenkins fought hard in the United States in the 1970s for what Japanese survivors had achieved more than a decade earlier, that is, publicly funded medical treatment and monetary allowances beginning in the 1950s, only to see their efforts largely fail by the 1980s. And here I am sharing with you the article uh, that appeared in August of 1974 featuring uh, one of the American survivors, uh, uh, whose name is Alfred Dote, uh, who I actually had a privilege of interviewing as a process of my uh, writing my book. And you can kind of see how uh, he is being described as a kind of a um, novice. Uh, U.S. survivors' presence wasn't widely known uh, then as much as it is they are not now. And also, um, they are trying to make an effort that uh, this person is um, among us, right? So uh, even though this may be a surprise for you to know somebody like U.S. survivor even existed, uh, he is featured in a very sympathetic light here. Um, so that's uh, kind of one um, piece of history that shows how U.S. survivors did fight fight. For, uh, did fight hard to gain public recognition and most importantly, US government recognition of their experiences. But they didn't succeed in doing that. That's the, the basic bottom line of a story um, uh, that comes out of their history. In contrast, Korean survivors built success on various court cases in Japan in the 1970s and 80s achieving a near equal treatment to Japanese survivors by the Japanese government by the early 2000s. Because Korean survivors were categorized broadly as non-Japanese hibakusha, American survivors also became beneficiaries of the measures offered by the Japanese government. Korean and American survivors then marked a terrible important moments in the history of gender, race, and disability across the Pacific. 
First, unlike the Hiroshima maidens whose scars did not lead to any apologies or, or compensation by U.S. officials, Korean survivors successfully challenged the Japanese government to expand the programs to treat radiation illness. A majority of Korean survivors featured graphically in Japanese media, as I mentioned earlier, and I will go back to it later in my talk, were actually men, while American survivors consisted largely of women, urging us to take seriously gendered dynamism that shaped Hibakusha activism. I see the 1970s as a turning point in survivors' activism, which scholars have characterized as compellingly uh, as compelling, but yet uh, and yet largely unsuccessful in shifting nuclear policies in the Pacific. On the Asian side of the Pacific, I argue, however, their accomplishments were substantial, especially if we consider radiation disability compensation by the Japanese government integral to nuclear policy making. Now, equally important, this turning point in the 1970s illuminates a striking absence of engagement with, with issues of radiation disability compensation from the other side of the Pacific, namely the United States. That American women like Jenkins came out as Hibaksha and asserted their disabilities in public could have shifted US policies toward denuclearization and decolonization. That it did not deserve our attention. By the mid-1980s, the U.S. government passed a law concerning irradiated U.S. citizens, veterans irradiated during the occupation of Hiroshima and Nagasaki in 45 to 46. In the early 1990s, benefits were extended to civilians, including Native American, Americans irradiated in uranium mines at the height of the Cold War. This registration concerning so-called atomic veterans and downwinders indicated that U.S. policies were becoming more cognizant of long-term radiation effects and the racially uneven ways in which uh, they had affected uh, U.S. citizens. Uh, American Hibakusha in the 1970s had many factors that could have made them beneficiaries of this U.S. registration. This was the era when the Asian American movement soared with some dimensions expanding globally and becoming an integral part of the third world awareness. Although it took a different expression than its white middle-class counterpart, women's rights activism within Asian America played important roles in the rise of race awareness. So Asian Americans attempt to deconstruct the model minority myth which you may have heard of, uh, that's, that's a misconception that Asian Americans overcome racism by simply working hard and be good, was really a project that's transformative of not only race, but also gender. And yet none of this mattered enough to shift the US approach to US Hibaksha. This lack of recognition is due not only to nuclear hegemony that US hoped to um, maintain, but also to the politics of gender, race, and disability specific to Asian Americans. Bodies injured by nuclear warfare were damaged, uh, demarcated, I'm sorry, demarcated as not only feminine, but also, also racially other in the United States. They were seen, but not seen, perpetually foreign to America's national body. This dynamism was essential for maintaining U.S. nuclear hegemony in the Pacific, in effect, becoming 
perhaps one of the most tenacious roadblock to decolonizing the Pacific. So let me now uh, look at uh, Korean survivors and their relationship to Japanese survivors. And the latter third of my talk will be going back to people like Jenkins who are US survivors. So I would argue if the transformative survivor food had any name, it would have been Shin Yonsu. He was captivating, said Toyonaga Keizaburo, a Japanese survivor who began to assist Korean survivors in 1971. And here you see to your left uh, the picture of uh, Shin Yonsu, Korean survivor. And uh, to your right, you see uh, Toyonaga Keizaburo, who also I had a, a privilege of interviewing. Uh, who is a Japanese survivor who came in support of Korean survivors, including Shin Yonsu. Toyonaga said the left side of his face, Shin Yonsu's face, was all keloid, and one of his eyes seemed like it had melted. Toyonaga continued. He came to Japan to speak about Korean survivors carrying this look around. People couldn't help but listening to this man. Toyonaga, for man, was deeply affected. After seeing Shin on television, Toyonaga got in touch with a group of Korean survivors in Korea. He spoke fluent Japanese, added Toyonaga, as one of the reasons why Shin had so much effect on him. When Shin applied for a certificate for survivors, survivor food issued by the Japanese government called Hibakusha Kenko Techo, or Techo for short, so as to receive medical treatment in Japan, Toyonaga helped by finding witness to prove Shin's survival food. Thanks to Toyonaga's effort, Shin in 1974 became the first Korean national to receive techo. Not only was Toyonaga inspired by Shin to learn about Korean hibaksha, Toyonaga also became more aware of his own survival food. I didn't really think of myself as hibaksha, said Toyonaga. But working with Shin brought back memories of the destruction which Toyonaga had witnessed as a nine-year-old. Soon, he began an application process for his own techo. This story of Japanese and Korean survivors is emblematic of a historical dynamism that led to the increased visibility of hibaksha in both countries in the late 1960s and early 1970s. There are a few reasons for this change. First, Nuclear scars in Korean, on Korean male bodies provoked a broader empathy among the Japanese than scarred frequently female bodies of Japanese hibaksha, like those of the Hiroshima maidens. As Japan's former colonial subject victimized by the American bomb, Korean injur injuries were seen as a result of multiple injustices. They applied even more urgent than Japanese hibakshas. Moreover, the critique of being too graphic which often plagued Japanese media representation of hibaksha, actually bypassed Korean survivors. While wartime Japanese racism against Koreans subsided by the late 1960s, the notion of Koreans as racial others persisted. This notion, in turn, likely made it less surprising for the Japanese to see scars on Korean bodies. As Koreans were racially inferior to the Japanese, the reasoning went, they could well suffer from disabilities. And secondly, Shin's cultural affinity to Japan, evidenced by his Japanese fluency, made it really clear that he was not foreign to Japan. 
This was in contrast to the Hiroshima maidens whose foreignness in America was indicated by how they spoke through translation during their stay in New York. Sin's injury had been undeniably incurred by Japan's late colonial policy, the first Koreans to speak Japanese, and that's the reason why he's fluent in Japanese to start with. This history appealed to Japan's left of the 1960s and 70s, bringing more visibility to the poor, ill, disabled had been an important focus of Japanese social movement. The social economic uh, predicament of Koreans in Japan became a chief concern, opening a way for Japanese activists of the left to articulate the legacy of Japanese colonialism as the root cause of inequality. Sin could not be ejected outside the national borders as were the Hiroshima maidens. An analysis of journalistic reports on Korean survivors illuminates how these two dynamisms developed, defining Korean hibakusha as a Japanese program that must be remedied by the Japanese. Until the late 1960s, Korean media reported on Korean survivors only sporadically. Hibakusha's invisibility originated from not only the sensitivity of the era's U.S.-Korea relation, but also the shame felt by many Korean survivors. Korean hibakusha seeking recognition from Japan faced an obstacle of being seen as dependent on the former colonizer. Often, the pursuit of non-dependency was coupled with an assertion of Korean racial purity made feloniously by the Republic of Korea's first president, Syngman Rhee. Asking for Japanese help was a path chosen only by the weak, or so it was believed, nationally disloyal and racially impure. Japanese media reports about Korean hibakusha transformed these difficult situations by um, explicitly taking responsibility for them. On August 16, 1968, Asahi Grafu featured Hibakusha, and I'm showing you uh, some images from this issue of 1968, uh, Asahi Grafu in Japan featuring Korean survivors, actually. The first half of the article was dedicated to Korean survivors in Japan called Zainichi survivors in A-bomb slum, one of the most undesirable neighborhoods in Hiroshima. While Japanese citizens gradually left the slum, Koreans who lacked other housing options stayed. They often lacked access to food and water, and their struggle to attain employment um, comprised a major portion of the article. The latter half of this uh, Asahi Grafu featured hibakusha in Korea, in contrast. Um, although their main uh, argument remained the same, the photos are more graphic. And I'd like to note here that there are a few photos I'm going to show you uh, that are uh, very uh, visually indicative of the physical scars on the bodies of survivors. I'd like you to know that I'm using those photos, uh, only the photos that are uh, published uh, with an agreement, explicit agreement of the uh, survivors who are pictures in the, pictured in those images. So um, this is something that they wanted to uh, be circulating in uh, a public for people to see and learn from it. So those pictures showed scars and disabilities more vividly than the photos in the first half. Here, physical injuries became the evidence for the fact that Koreans in Korea were also affected by the bomb. 
The article then claimed that the seeds of their unhappiness were planted by Japan. This was a quote. For Korean Hibakusha, quote unquote, the war is not over as long as the Japanese refuses to take responsibility for the damages. Plagued by difficulties, Korean survivors in this report emerged as people rightfully seeking post-colonial justice. Significantly, most Korean survivor feature, survivors featured by Japanese media were men, for which there are a few reasons. For one, three quarters of those who had come forward as survivors in Korea by 1968 were men. And this was because more men than women migrated from the peninsula during the colonial era as men were as chief household owners. It is also likely that men were more willing to come forward as hibaksha. Because of the shame surrounding survivor food, survivors needed compelling reasons to disclose their status. It was notable then that Japanese media emphasized the dire lack of employment for Korean survivors. Quote unquote, a keloid on the left arm makes it dysfunctional, causing him, meaning a Korean survivor, an, an uh, unemployment. One article reported. In essence, the bomb prevented the men from performing male duties. To be sure, Japanese survivors sometimes received a similar coverage, but media reports about them tended to feature the need for better health care and scientific research. The need for employment was mentioned only infrequently, and when it was, it was discussed under the umbrella terms of seikatsu hosho, meaning support for living, or fukushi, welfare, shedding only gentle light on survivors' daily struggles. This was likely because of the concern that too many specifics would damage their privacy, gender identity, and self-respect. The consensus here in the 60s and 70s, therefore, was that Japanese femininity and masculinities were already healing, so it needs to be protected, while their Korean counterparts were still severely damaged and needed active intervention for recovery. The assume, assumed racial differences between Japanese and Korean peoples helped to make this distinction, as indicated by how physical scars were or were not shown. Korean hibakusha's injuries were no different than Japanese hibakusha's, and yet the former were presented with less reserve than the, former, than the latter, accentuating the superior post-colonial positions that the Japanese believed to have held over Koreans. United by nuclear scars, Korean and Japanese bodies remained distinguished. Problematic as it was, this process of making familiar things foreign also opened a way of making falling things familiar. Japanese survivors' um, activism intensified in this era, not only promoting anti-nuclearism, but also demanding better treatment of hibakusha. More survivors than ever came forward, speaking about their bomb experiences in public forums, museums, and schools. Some hibakusha agreed to reveal their scars along with their testimonies. Take, for example, Nagasaki survivor Taniguchi uh, Sumiteru. Um, he, is, um, he actually uh, just uh, recently passed away. Um, uh, he is rather well known in Japan, among the Japanese uh, uh, people because of what you see on the screen. After a photo of the barns on his back uh, as of 1945, as a young boy, as you see in the uh, image to your left, 
uh, was broadcasted in 1970, uh, he began to speak about the bomb with an enlarged photo of himself in his hands. Later, Taniguchi began to show his scarred body itself in public. He worked tirelessly for expanding the publicly funded benefits for Hibaksha, such as free health care and monetary support regardless of health status, income, and age. By the early 1980s, all these goals were actually met one way or another. A key to this success was Japanese Hibaksha speaking out. Although they still frame their demands in general terms, such as support for living or welfare, as I mentioned earlier, they carried more weight than uh, when it, they were accompanied by testimonies, photos, and bodies. Visibility that Korean Hibakusha scars brought to survivor food actually helped render Japanese Hibakusha's injuries more familiar, socially acceptable. These breakthroughs offered Korean survivors and Japanese survivors opportunities to repair their masculinities, I argue. By revealing their scars, they were not only repairing physical, physical injuries, they were also mending injustices that shaped the 20th century history of Japan-Korea relations. In so doing, survivors and their supporters were also incorporating nuclear scars into their masculinities. It was no longer shameful for men to be injured, sickened, and unemployed because of the bomb. Indeed, to address the structure of inequality that had imposed the shame was to restore masculinity. They grew more certain and confident of their claims as they built their activism on the logic of decolonization. Unlike the feminine image of Hibaksha, these masculine embodiments of survivorhood successfully brought official recognition and medical benefits to both Japanese and Korean survivors. So now I am going to turn to the Asian American survivors by looking into the notion of model minority myth and its relationship to nuclear scars. So none of those development in Korea and Japan affected the US government's and mainstream media's approach to American Hibaksha, until, uh, which until the early 1970s, by the way, remained no recognition. Thereafter, U.S. survivors became known, although the media reported them only rarely. They continued to receive no support from the government, U.S. government. Overall, American survivors of Hiroshima and Nagasaki experienced invisibility more than Japanese and Korean survivors. When back in America after the war, U.S. Hibaksha were afraid that their cross-national experiences might raise questions about their national royalty. Japanese Americans, again, had been incarcerated during the war because of these very questions. Revealing survivor food seemed risky even after the war. A safer way, safer way seemed to be to pr prove that they were model minorities, indeed, who overcame injustice and inequality by perseverance. Seemingly benign, the miss, um, not so hidden aim was to blame Black Americans for their failure to overcome racism. So in addition to the model minority myth, the gender-skewed makeup of U.S. Hibaksha mattered, I argue. About three quarters of them were women because many survivors came back to America through their marriages to U.S. soldiers stationed in Japan in the occupation era, many of whom were actually Japanese Americans. Some Japanese female Hibaksha with no previous family connection to America also came to the United States as military brides after the war 
adding to the predominance of women. Regardless of whether they had been born in America or Japan, many survivors lacked English fluency when they came together in the late 1960s. They lost familiarity with the language while living in Japan. After returning or coming to America, they often struggle with the language um, uh, to gain employment uh, because of uh, lack of language proficiency. For this reason, some leaders of the U.S. Hibakusha organization uh, called Committee of A-Bomb Survivors in the U.S., or CABS, established in 1971, characterized themselves as a group of reserved women lacking social capital. Now, U.S. mainstream media follows suits featuring both male and female survivors in highly gendered language. An August 1974 issue of New York Times, for example, describe an older female survivors, uh, a survivor, quote-unquote, a frail, white-haired widow wearing a kimono hiding the ugly keloid scars on her arms and body. And this is the article that you are looking at on the screen now. And this is actually one uh, of the uh, earliest mainstream national U.S. newspapers that ever mentioned even the existence of U.S. or to be more precise, Asian American survivors of the bomb. Uh, Japanese American ethnic newspaper uh, papers referred to or discovered to uh, put it more bluntly, the presence of US survivors earlier than that, but not much. Actually, you have to look at really early 1970s to really see, begin to see even ethnic newspapers talking about American survivors. Fragility, femininity, and foreignness were conspicuous in this description. And this article also was one of the rare instances in which survivors' physical scars were mentioned in the US. Because of the immigration laws that denied entry to persons, quote unquote, likely to become a public church, only those who are neither physically scarred nor certified by Techo were likely to be in America. Uh, uh, to be allowed to enter America, unless, of course, they were US-born US citizens, which many of US survivors were. Another newspaper in 1975 depicted a younger Hibaksha as, quote unquote, a delicate, diffident woman of 47 who suffers from nightmares. She had felt always weak and nervous, suggesting how the helplessness that framed the Hiroshima meeting persisted here. So the media reports on male hibaksha, on the other hand, highlighted physical, not psychological illness and its effect on men's earning ability, to some extent echoing the Japanese media representation of Korean hibaksha that we looked at earlier. Uh, Sacramento bomb veterans of the US Army, uh, who was currently the owner of a small lawn mower shop in Pasadena, one article noted, worried about mounting medical, mounting medical bills. While the U.S. had been treating more than 300,000 surviving Japanese in the homeland, U.S. survivors didn't receive any help from their own government. Now, this misinformation about the United States treating Japanese survivors, I want to make it clear it was not, but nonetheless it was reported as such accentuated the injustice of no support for U.S. survivors while Japanese survivors are getting treatment. Another male hibaksha, uh, quote unquote, had his insurance canceled immediately after an account of his experience appeared in a national magazine. So bomb stigma could cost a job. 
But it was not only government officials and, and employers lacking understanding. Quote, uh, unquote, the code of honor of Japanese American community is the root of the problem, declared one article. This is what separated U.S. media approach to U.S. Hibakusha from Japanese reports on Korean survivors. Coming out as Hibakusha, U.S. survivors were still presented as honorable model minorities. In this regard, it is striking that their physical scars were discussed but not shown. Not only the mainstream media, media but also ethnic papers refrain from showing graphic image of Hibakusha regardless of their gender. These images were too controversial as they suggested how model minority may not be perfect after all. This didn't mean that no new ground was broken, however. Despite the initial lack of support from Japanese American communities, US survivors formed a self-support organization and demanded publicly funded medical treatment from the US government through the 1970s. Gradually, community support came around. The Pacific Citizen, Japanese American Citizens League's organ, did not acknowledge American survivors' US citizenship at first. For the first time in September 1974, however, survivors became, according to uh, you know, uh, Pacific Citizen, Japanese American citizens. And in October of, the, October of the same year, American citizens by birth, marriage, or naturalization, end of quote. Both reports indicated JACL's more forthright recognition of US survivors' citizenship and their rights to medical care. Japanese American newspapers like Rafu Shinpo or Hokubei Mainichi and Nichibei Times frequently reported US survivors' activism, featuring progress made on state registration sponsored by California State Senate, State Senator Marvin Daimley in 1974, as well as the 1978 federal bill co-sponsored by US Congressman Edward Roybal and Norman Mineta. These bills, though failing passage, would have created U.S.-funded medical treatment programs for U.S. survivors. This expanded support from Japanese America had its root in the stance that it began to take on racial justice and gender equality. The Asian American movement was on the rise, right? And many engaged in rallies and strikes to address gaps in employment, housing, and education. Oppression uniquely affecting women in the community came under scrutiny too, bringing critical light to stereotypes of Asian women as helpless. Anti-Vietnam War sentiment intensified as the third world awareness rose to foster Asian Americans' comradeship with Vietnamese, Cambodians, and Laotians, including female fighters resisting American domination in Asia. In this effort for decolonizing the Pacific, some began to reflect on their lack of awareness about Hiroshima and Nagasaki. If they were opposed to America's wars against Asia as racist and imperialist, why were they not also opposed to the bomb? They started to question. This questioning nurtured the critique of the model minority myth. Racial unity, including coalition between Asian and Black Americans, was critical. Divide and conquer was no more. Many Asian Americans, particularly young professionals like lawyers, physicians, and social workers began to support U.S. survivors. The determination to gain support by U.S. Hibakusha, like Kuniko Jenkins, whose appearance in the 1978 congressional hearing opened this presentation tonight, 
must be understood in those contexts of race and gender awareness transforming Asian America. As an older group, U.S. survivors didn't share the same race awareness or gender identity as younger Asian Americans. But their unprecedented acts, which is public displays of their disabilities, as you saw at the start of my talk today, signal that the era of invisibility was over. Jenkins didn't present herself as a feminine person either. Indeed, she might have been seen as unfeminine because she drove from San Francisco to Los Angeles to attend the hearing. Flying was not an option for Jenkins because airlines would not accept her oxygen tank. Many Japanese American women of her generation didn't have driver's licenses because driving was considered a man's job. Not only her strong will to attend the hearing, but also her unwomanly skill came to light, contradicting the mainstream image of U.S. survivors as helpless. Male survivors also acted in a way that blurred gender boundaries. Kazuo, uh, Kazuo Tosaka, when he spoke during the hearing in the California Senate in 1974, he's a survivor, of course, literally showed his grief over his inability to rescue his mother from fire in Hiroshima. Her arm was trapped under debris and miraculously, he quote unquote, had an ax to chop her arm off to set her free. But he just couldn't do anything and he fainted, leading to her death. As he spoke, Tosaka's voice was breaking. He didn't show physical scars as Korean Hibakusha did. Nonetheless, um, Tosaka's open emotion was an act of protest revealing a new kind of injury, masculinity, and identity as a survivor, recognizing psychological, not only physical, hurt was a masculine act of social justice seeking in the era of civil rights movement. Why then did U.S. survivor fail to gain recognition from the U.S. government? Why is it only the Japanese government that funds medical and monetary support for U.S. survivors today, which is the case? In geopolitical context, America hoped to maintain the nuclear hegemony, compensating for any um, Sibaksha, including its own, uh, raised, raises too many moral and legal questions. In social and cultural realm, I argue, the model minority myth helped affirm the image of Hibaksha and their injured bodies as racially other and falling, trivializing them as unworthy of civil rights and misfit for this decolonization. Although U.S. survivors subverted gender boundaries and countered the myth of Asian Americans as uncomplaining, aspects of their actions might have contributed actually to the myth. Despite her serious disability, for instance, Jenkins was able to drive three days straight to attend the hearing, right? Especially for Asian American women, this was an impressive ability. And although Tosaka might have been psychologically injured, he still was able to overcome his embarrassment to tell his story in public. Although some female Hibakusha acted in unfeminine ways and some men displayed unmasculine qualities, their actions still fed the notion of Asian American ability. Consequently, U.S. Hibakusha's disabilities were impossible to see. Scars cannot hurt too much because they are on racial minorities. Uh, they are racial minorities, supposed to be, right? With 
special ability to self-heal. This circulatory endless self-enhancement is actually one of the distinctive characteristics of the model minority myth. One effect of the myth is that Asian Americans are seen as foreign in addition to racially other, perpetuating a form of cultural essentialism. And in this regard, it is important to note that unlike Korean survivors who appeal to Japanese supporters in Japanese, uh, many American hibakusha spoke in accented English like, uh, or Japanese translated in English. Their status as perpetual foreigner who never belonged to the US national body thus might have um, seemed manifest in their self-representation. And indeed, the 1974 hearing provoked comment from some of the attending California senators that US survivors had been, quote unquote, our enemies during the war, showing a fundamental lack of understanding about US Hibakusha and their history. Although such blatant prejudice subsided by four years later in 74, the, uh, the congressional hearing uh, in that year promoted some uh, members of the Congress to oppose the bill because it cast doubt on the bomb's morality and legality. U.S. survivors made a distinct plea to President Jimmy Carter only to receive a response in 1977 from the Office of Japan Affairs. This is the office that deals with Japanese affairs. It's not civil rights of American citizens of Japanese ancestry. And this was therefore an insult to Americans claiming their rights as citizens. They wrote again to which they received a response in 1978, reiterating the US government's position, quote unquote, not to pay claims arising out of the lawful conduct of military activities in, by US forces in wartime. This position remains unchanged today. So I would say, as a second conclusion, despite U.S. Hibakusha's acts that visibly transform gender, persisted beliefs about, um, persistent beliefs about their race and ability, push them back toward invisibility, limiting the role they could play in decolonizing the Pacific. They have received less support than the Hiroshima maidens who were deemed unquestionably feminine or Korean survivors who effectively formed a new post-colonial masculinity. Transforming gender was not enough to deconstruct the model minority myth, both nationally and across the Pacific. Indeed, racism might have overwhelmed gender by making both femininity and masculinity irrelevant to American racial minorities' rights. By analyzing the intersection of gender, race, and disability in trans-Pacific context, we can be better equipped to identify the roots of an injustice that keeps U.S. survivors invisible and U.S. officials incapable of integrating Hibakusha disability into their policy making. Thank you very much. Uh, this is what I prepared for um, you tonight, so I will be happy to take your questions. Uh, I'll start off first. Uh, in your book, you do cover uh, how, as you just said, that the uh, U.S. survivors were, were not recognized by the uh, U.S. government uh, under the Radiation Exposure Compensation Act, but uh, the survivors actually do get medical checkups biannually, uh, but not paid for by the U.S. government, but directly from Japan. Maybe you could discuss that a little bit. Sure, thank you for the question. So um, 
when U.S. survivors are trying to get recognition from the U.S. government, they were simultaneously reaching out to the Japanese government as well, because, of course, there are uh, precedents already established there. The Japanese government by 1950s had uh, ways of recognizing survivors and pay for their medical needs out of public payers' money. So the American survivors felt that uh, this is a great model for us to follow. So they started to reach out both nationally and internationally uh, as part of their activism in 1970s. And uh, they were successful only in terms of their activism vis-a-vis -vis the Japanese government because of the reasons I elaborated during my talk, because there was a precedence by, you know, established by the Korean survivors, among other things. Um, so uh, nowadays, uh, from 1977 onward, uh, Hiroshima and in some ways um, uh, Nagasaki, but largely Hiroshima physicians who are familiar with radiation illnesses uh, by, you know, having the patients who are Hiroshima survivors in Japan, once in every two years come to cities, uh, including San Francisco and Los Angeles. Um, it used to uh, be the case with Seattle as well, but I believe they don't longer go to Seattle and uh, Honolulu. So um, it is a, a huge uh, commitment on the part of the Japanese government to care for American citizens who are survivors. And uh, only recently, but importantly, American survivors also uh, obtained the right to um, be recognized as survivors by the TECHO, the Certificate of Survivor Food I mentioned in my talk, and be compensated uh, with monetary allowances. So Japanese government does not use the word compensation but they offer it as a monetary support for U.S. survivors to take care of their health needs. Um, so the amount is limited to, uh, it, it has caps, uh, whereas uh, Japanese survivors, if they suffer from certain conditions, can uh, have uh, not exactly unlimited, but pretty uh, liberal amount of governmental support for treating their radiation illnesses. And also uh, they can get reimbursement for their medicines, uh, which is not actually really the case with US survivors. So they are still sort of fighting uh, against those uh, discriminations as they see them uh, so that they would be more equally treated as Japanese survivors in Japan. But however, I think it's very um, striking that you know, US survivors really wanted to have not only Japanese government's recognition, but also U.S. government's recognition. You know, think about being ill and having to rely on Japanese doctors who come only once in two years. They do medical health checkups, but they don't really treat American survivors. When you are ill, you have to go to your local hospital. You have to go to your own medical doctor you know and you feel comfortable with. And there has to be a better system to support that kind of care in the U.S., right? Because, I mean, how long does it take for American survivors to go to A-bomb hospital in Hiroshima? It's going to take 38 hours, actually. I mean, I, I know every single hour of it because I have done that trip many times. And uh, that's not something that you demand from American survivors. If there is a need for them to be treated by specialists who know something about radiation exposure, which you can't really gain unless there is a public support by the U.S. 
that makes U.S. doctors and hospitals available to, to care for them. So it has been a, a, a very much of a struggle for U.S. survivors, and it's not just a matter of not being able to get medical care, but it's a matter of recognition, right? They want to be recognized as U.S. citizens who are injured by their own government's decision to use the bomb. And uh, they are really asking those kinds of questions of recognition at the same time as demanding a better access to medical and health care. Hi, um, I'm a son of a survivor from Nagasaki, and um, I've lived here for quite some time. I came here when I was young, and um, um, I'm right now I'm trying to make a feature film about my family's experience of surviving the A-bomb in Nagasaki and uh, how that changed the trajectory of my family members, including myself. And um, also, you know, growing up here since high school, and I knew I was gay from when I was young, very much young, you know, young age. And, um, you know, it's one of those things that I can't help but to think that maybe that had something to do with my mother's surviving the A-bomb. And that kind of, you know, nagging thoughts just never disappear. And I also want to share that um, I also suspect that I do have um, transgenerational trauma, and that's something that I became aware since uh, experiencing 9-11 uh, in New York City, that's where I live. And um, that sort of like, that experience revealed that I felt like it was, it revealed the hidden transgenerational trauma that came from my parents. Mm -hmm. um, and... Um, uh, and I think the uh, presentation is really wonderful. And my question is, um, you know, mo um, going forward and considering all that's happening politically in this country, especially how conservatives, conservatism became really toxic and in a climate where they're prohibiting critical race theory, let's say, in schools solely because, you know, they want their children feeling guilty or terrible for learning what had actually happened in this whole like climate of revisionism what's the shape of movement building in terms of anti-nuclear weapons um, activism i'm just trying to figure out the best way to present that direction in which we can you know really let people know and make them understand the consequences of um, nuclear weapons, and obviously, currently the war well, from Russia against Ukraine. I mean, it, we're just looking at, you know, the the what can happen, and what's happening now is what everyone was afraid of, and especially, you know, a lot of Japanese are upset. Uh, I'm upset, and I just want to know, you know, what do you think about the direction of anti-nuclear? Uh, movement uh, going forward? Yeah, thank you for the question. Um, we talk a lot about the importance of inheritance. Um, so it is um, something that we have to figure out how to do. So uh, how do you uh, pass the legacy of Hiroshima and Nagasaki to the next generation? And especially this question is critical because survivors are going away, right? They're, the first generation survivors are um, very old if they are alive. 
And some of the survivors um, that I had a, a chance to interview already passed away between the time of interview and the publication of my book. So I had a um, remarkable experience of having a joy of sending out my book to some of the survivors that I met during my work and being able to receive notes of thank you from them or congratulations from them. But in other cases, I learned that they already passed away and I heard from some of their surviving children or friends that they, they did. And that was how I learned that my book did not make it <laughs> in some ways, right? Um, so um, this importance of continuing to remember this uh, experience and uh, what they have said and done about those experiences is particularly criti critical at this juncture in history. And I, I think in thinking about how, um, you know, uh, careless but strategic statement like President Putin about the potential use of nuclear arms, uh, we have to continue to generate a counter narrative um, that may not seem like they have political values, but I think I really believe in the power of continuing to generate narratives from the ground level. And I see my book contributing to that kind of narrative force on the ground. I cannot tell you how much I uh, was moved on so many different levels by talking to American survivors. And... Uh, some of the things that they did it just um, changed my views uh, in fundamental ways. And let me give you a, a one example. Um, so you, you mentioned your uh, sexual identity and uh, some survivors were uh, LGBTQ and uh, some survivors are allies of LGBTQ communities in general. And I once spoke to one of the leaders of CABS you know, the survivors grassroots organization I mentioned. And um, he uh, was actually a, a, a minister in his church. And uh, he was actually one of the first ministers who um, agreed to officially marry a gay couple. And he did it together with many other ministers so that he won't get punished by being singled out. And I think the way that he talked about this um, issue of um, uh, LGBTQ rights was because of his dedication to anti-nuclear cause as a survivor. And he actually, despite the fact he's a survivor, does not really identify himself as a survivor. Rather, he actually um, um, is more of a stronger leader in the organization that's created in support of survivors. So it's called actually Friends of Hibaksha. And he was be, being active in that organization by um, playing a supporting role instead of playing a survivor's role. So he kind of plays dual roles. Uh, and on the top of that, he was in support of gay rights because he believed that um, social marginalization is unjust, right? And it, this experience as a survivor or experience as a supportable survivor, he is working against injustice of discrimination to civilians who were uh, injured by the national governments. I would use the prologue here, right? There are more than one governments 
the the damage and injury to survivors of all nationalities. And and that has to be recognized, that has to uh, be brought to justice. And to him, the kind of social marginalization that LGBTQ community members are experiencing, experiencing as of, you know, 1990s and onward, was of the similar nature, um, because he, he felt that here is another person who is deprived of the right to be accepted, right to thrive, right to be supported um, by their families, their community members, by their governments. So I think this kind of story uh, needs to be need to be uh, there, and we need to continue to generate that, regardless of whether or not we are survivors or even belonging to the same generation as survivors. Um, so that's one thing I really learned about. Uh, uh, about, about the power of those um, continuous history making. History does not end when it happened. It continues to happen. I think history is a, a collection of many moments. And we as individuals, even though we may not seem as powerful as national government or Putin or Biden for that matter, do actually have a power to continue to create uh, create those dots in history that actually does change uh, how we understand history. So I don't know if I responded to your question fully, but um, I do really believe in the importance of the work, such as the one that you um, sound like you are trying to, to make. Um, I think it's an important work. Okay, we have a question from Kyoko Toyama. She's a counselor at LaGuardia Community College. Uh, at State University of New York, uh, Professor Toyama has also in the past uh, done uh, gatherings and uh, lectures with survivors of the atomic bomb directly from uh, Japan uh, coming over here. And uh, they, they also speak at the uh, UN against uh, nuclear armament. Uh, so I don't know if uh, Professor Toyama wants to raise her hand and just you know, talk about that a little bit. But her question is, uh, thank you for your research. Uh, I am just curious about what the life of uh, Kuniko Jenkins and Kazuo uh, Tasaka turned out to be. And she also wants to know what made you decide to select this topic uh, for your book, uh, you know, researching on Hibu yeah, you know, Kusha. Yeah, thank you. Um... Uh, for a good question. Um, I, I think individual lives matter, so I appreciate your curiosity about what happened to those particular individuals that I featured in my work tonight. Um, uh, in case of Kuniko Jenkins, um, she passed away in the early 1980s. Um, she, her health was um, evidently in precarious condition even as of 1978. And um, she uh, was greatly missed by her fellow survivors because actually um, one of the, her, her great leadership skills was shown as a way to just bring people together by bringing a ton of food. And this may sound almost stereotypically Asian American woman-ish, but she excelled in doing it. Um, she uh, would steal sake from uh, her husband's cabinet and then bring it to the survivors gathering. And this is a really a community building, story of a community building I wanted to write about in that those people are not famous individuals trying to um, uh, you know, uh, create um, some ideological principles. They are uh, 
talking among themselves, talking to each other, listening to each other, and using those activities as part of their community building and identity formation. And I think it's very powerful, um, all of those things that they managed to do from really such a small scale. And Kuniko Jenkins, even though she passed away shortly thereafter, uh, played crucial roles in, in, in this regard. Um, I know much less about uh, Mr. Kaz um, Kazuo Tosaka uh, because uh, he, I only encountered him through uh, primary sources that documented the uh, proceedings of the, uh, the congressional hearing. So uh, actually, even to find out how to spell his name was very difficult for me because in the same document, uh, the record of the uh, hearing, his names were spelled in three different ways. And this is something that must be very familiar to Asian Americans um, who uh, have Asian sounding names or Asian looking names. We constantly get misspelled, right? And our names are constantly mispronounced as well. And this really shows American English imperialism, which is precisely the reason why uh, Kazuo Tosaka's name was misspelled, at least two of those three instances. Uh, and I, I decided to go with the uh, external um, document. I believe it was a JACL document that spelled his name in one of those three ways. And I decided to go with it. And of course that also sounded most appropriate as a Japanese name, uh, as it would have been actually a very awkward name if it were actually a name of a Japanese person in a certain generation. So I know him only in that regard. Um, I, I of course wish I knew more about him. Um, so um, in terms of your second part of the question, which is uh, why did I decide to write this book? I think it was um, actually almost by accident. I, I was actually reading an article about Japanese American uh, concentration camp uh, survivors, former internees. And one little footnote uh, in the article said that some of the family members of Japanese American camp internees were bombed in Hiroshima and Nagasaki. And there are currently six of them that are identified. And I thought it cannot be that small um, because among other things, lots of people came from Hiroshima to Los Angeles, right? Or San Francisco or Stockton or San Jose. Um, there has to be more. And it turned to be turned out to be the case that there are thousands more. Um, that sort of um, visibility of camp and invisibility of the bomb in Asian American understanding of who we are really got me going. I wanted to, I wanted to challenge that and broke boundaries. So that's one of the many reasons why I wanted to write this book. Uh, thank you. Uh, Professor Toyama actually wants to say some few words. Uh, Professor Toyama? No, no, I just wanted to, because when, when somebody um, speaks like this, you don't get a chance to uh, hear. So I just wanted to personally thank you, Dr. Wake. And when you mentioned about the history being, he, there's something you can do about the history. I have another friend who is a historian, and he said, we do actually we do, we are doing history. It's not about the past, but we are part of the history. We're doing a history. So uh, I really appreciate it because as uh, Anthony said, I have been supporting 
Hibakusha for years. And uh, unfortunately, but I think there are so many of us who grew up in Japan not understanding, not knowing what the life of Hibakusha until you leave the country. So that's how I started. And um, this part of the research information is something I was not aware. So um, I'm going to read your book and share with uh, um, others and my students and um, people who have been working in this area. Thank you so much. Thank you very much. I appreciate your uh, coming out and uh, (laughs) to me personally. Okay, uh, we have a question from Kimiko Ichikawa. Uh, where does RERF, a former ABCC stand for among these recognition and support for Korean to US Hibakusha? Do they intervene with supporting or examining Hibakusha? Yeah, so um, ABCC actually was established first and then it became a research uh, institute. Um, research facility for radiation illness in early 19, I think it was mid 1970s. So Atomic Bomb Casualty Commission or ABCC uh, knew of US survivors uh, because they didn't distinguish Japanese American and Japanese survivors or for that matter, Korean survivors when started out their research on the effect of radiation on human bodies in uh, mid 1940s and 1947. And uh, to be more precise, and so uh, they realized uh, that they actually have lots of Americans and Koreans among the people that they studied. Um, They did not come out and said that that that's what's happened until um, 1970s, Uh, despite the knowledge that they already had, they didn't make it open. Uh, I think in part because it was such a, a difficult fact to expose. Uh, ABCC, as you are probably familiar with, uh, they don't treat survivors. Uh, their official policy was to conduct scientific research only, but not to treat survivors. Uh, because if they treat survivors, it would be atonement, right? It's like US is accepting that they did some wrongs and then they have to uh, compensate for that. Uh, by treating survivors. So that's the reason why, officially speaking, ABCC or uh, research facility of radiation effect did not actually uh, treat survivors and they still do not. Um, so uh, they, I think they were playing as an uh, institution of national interest. And of course, um, you know, uh, research, uh, the, uh, since the 1970s, uh, the radiation effect research center uh, has been really um, uh, jointly funded by both the Japanese and American government. Um, so if you sort of think about the, the uh, research that's being done as a joint effort of those two governments and how their subject has include, have included Japanese Americans, you could say the American government is indirectly contributing to the research on American survivors' health and effect of radiation on it. And yet, none of it is official. Uh, So I think a lack of official recognition in both of those institutions mattered to survivors in the US, and it continues to matter. Um, The AVCC and um, Radiation Effect Research Institute, um, uh, uh, 
I'm blanking on the last letter, um, institute that I mentioned, it's actually, um, the reputation is not good. <laughs> there are many uh, complaints. Uh, and this is something that's cross-national. It's not just among Japanese survivors, but also Asian American survivors and Korean survivors have memories of how the uh, ABCC workers came to my uh, house right after my child passed away to collect his bodies, to use it as a specimen. And there are just numerous, uh, a number of those stories that really shape the history of bomb in their in their personal experiences. Um, so yeah, um, they have played at least, to say the least, very contested roles as uh, Institute of America, and in many ways, Japanese national interest as Cold War allies. And then that's what I was trying to recognize by saying that we need to decolonize Pacific, especially nuclear Pacific, by critiquing all of those nation-state-driven, interest-driven policies and institutes uh, that negate American survivors and also other survivors' experiences. Hey, thank you. Uh, our next question is from June Kim. You partially answered this. Uh, she wonders, what is the U.S. government's rationale not to support American Hibakusha survivors while granting reparations, though partial to Japanese Americans who were uh, interned or incarcerated during World War II uh, back in 1988? Yeah, thank you for the question. Um, it's, it's very um, difficult for America to recognize that there are some uh, survivors who are their own citizens. It's like opening a can of worms. Uh, it's not the just thing to do. It's, it's, it raises all sorts of um, strategic, militarily strategic, legal, moral, and ethical questions. So that's one big part of uh, the reason why uh, U.S. government is unwilling or incapable of recognizing U.S. survivors. Whereas if you think about uh, the reparation or redress for Japanese American uh, internees, incarcerees during World War II, you can see how it kind of fits the narrative of America's national progress. So it used to be a racist country. They had, you know, restrictive immigration laws uh, to Chinese people and then uh, Japanese and then Koreans. And, and we have, a, America has a long history of racial discrimination. Now, U.S. as part of the Cold War strategy, in part as an effort to start to look like they are the leader of the democratic and free and uh, free world, um, started to go against those images. So, you know, civil rights movement uh, took place, and um, you know, Presti versus Ferguson was uh, reversed by Brown versus Board of Education, right? And it started to really do domestic, implement domestic policies so that they can, America can change the image of America as dominant and uh, uh, autocratic racist nation by saying to the rest of the world, hey, we are opening a gate now for people of color to come to the States. And hey, we are also implementing racially tolerant, uh, you know, policies in uh, domestic policy making scenes as well. And, you know, Japanese American redress movement fits right into that, right? So America can say, hey, we did wrong. 
And now that we are advanced in terms of our race awareness, we are going to correct that mistake we made. And it could actually work as a way to further strengthen America's standing in the global stage. Whereas what do they gain by recognizing Japanese American and Korean American survivors? It's much less clear, right? And America really needs to hold on to, according to their thinking, needs to hold on to uh, nuclear dominance in the Pacific. Uh, think of what's happening in you know, Russia, right? And uh, Ukraine at, at, at this moment, even as we even talk. I think that uh, the notion of uh, mutually assured destruction that's generated by nuclear possession build up of both of the nuclear superpowers in the world, which is Russia and US. US feels they cannot give up on that. And to be able to continue to have that balance of power with other nuclear powers around the world, they feel it's necessary to have um, you know, support in the Pacific from nations such as South Korea, for instance, or Japan. Equally importantly, they are allies in the Pacific in their effort to maintain nuclear Pacific uh, after the war. So that means that they cannot accept the fact that they were making a mistake by injuring their own citizens, not to mention Korean survivors, uh, Korean uh, nationals of Japanese empire who were forced to be in Japan proper during the war, right? Um, because it shows there were ethical and all sorts of other questions I mentioned earlier from the beginning of the nuclear age that America opened. Um, so um, there is so much more to be said about this, but I hope at least I gave you some sense of how I see those two issues of the camp and the bomb differently treated by the US government. Oh, thank you. And we'll have one last question. Uh, Alexandra de Leon asks, uh, they're interested in the historical use of images, both by Hibokusha themselves and by the news media publications to support certain narratives of the bombing and survivors. Uh, they wonder if you think there have been changes in what images are deemed acceptable in the different contexts discussed today. Uh, Japanese-American Hibokusha in the U.S., Japanese Hibokusha in, uh, in Japan, etc., uh, since post-war period. Uh, they're thinking of the different kinds of images used in textbooks in the U.S., for example. Yeah, um, I think, you know, one thing that has been very uh, prevalent in the U.S. depiction of the bomb is that it was mostly uh, structural damage and destruction featured in the images. Or, for that matter, the mushroom cloud, right? So we have probably seen the picture of mushroom cloud, and it's often sort of described as, uh, not something that happened on the ground. It's something that happens literally in the air, meaning somewhat detached, abstract, removed, because it doesn't really show the real cost of uh, human uh, consequences uh, that unfolded under the cloud. So if they ever went down to the ground level of the destruction, it was not people, uh, not even animals. It was mostly uh, buildings and structures like bridges or roads or trains that were ruined instead of human consequences. Um, I don't know. I think, you know, they are probably still difficult and for that reason, rare for us to see survivors' images um, in the US media 
and also U.S. textbooks as well. I do not know, you know, teaching Michigan State University students, if I can frankly say that most students know much of anything about Hibakusha history. Um, it, it, they heard about it, they know the bomb, um, but they don't really, what they know is about, you know, Manhattan Project, scientists or policymakers who were in the decision-making processes that made the bomb possible. But made the bomb possible in a sense that made the bomb's production and the use possible, not what happened afterward. Um, so I think in, in that way, um, it, it is still severely limited. I am not trying to say that um, pictures that show um, you know, bodily damages are perfect or even better than American focus on structural destructions, because in the case of Japan, they really focus on bodily damages done to Japanese survivors as a way to uh, project their image as innocent victims, as a way, as a matter of fact, to erase a history of their colonial aggression against China, against uh, Taiwan, against Korea, among others, and Vietnam and beyond. So um, it has a problematic history in Japan that was uh, willing to show physical damages among uh, survivors. Um, so I think it's all the more important for us to think about why there are gaps between those two limited images and depictions of the bomb, and uh, think about a better way to educate our future generation. Um, I teach for that reason as well, right? Um, I at least want my students, American students, anyway, a large number of them are American students, to know that there are different kinds of stories as part of the history of the bomb. I have to say, I still have to give a lot of warnings before I show um, things like uh, Hadashi no Gen, the barefoot Gen. Gen is the name of a Japanese boy who is like a, a, a prototype of uh, innocent, Japanese victim of the bomb. And it's a movie's title, and it came out in 1982. It, it still is one of the best films I ever seen depicting the moment of the explosion. And for that reason, I show that to my uh, you know, students at Michigan State. Uh, I, I carefully prepare them because I'm aware because of the lack of those images throughout their K-12 education here at the US, in the US, they could be very much shocked by that image, even though it's, you know, graphic image, uh, it's not a real image, right? Um, so, I mean, I think there are possibilities for change. I think um, compared to 1995, when there was a debate about Smithsonian Museum not showing the artifact from the ground, we have made a great progress, but I think there are many areas for improvement and challenges. Uh, thank you very much, uh, Professor Wake, again, for a wonderful presentation. Uh, folks here, you can purchase a copy of American Survivors from the Cambridge website uh, for $29.95 or the ebook for $24. The link is available on our uh, Professor Wake's uh, talk uh, webpage. Uh, you can click there and it'll take you directly to the website, or you can visit the other uh, mainstream bookstores as well. It's available. Please purchase her book. Uh, contact her if you have more questions regarding this. Uh, let other people know about this uh, very important and not often talked about uh, subject and, you know, share that information out with folks uh, who might not be aware in, uh, about this part of American history. 
And with that, uh, have a wonderful weekend. And remember to be upstander if you see a fellow person in need. Uh, good night. And thank you very much, Professor Watkins.